0: Chapter Twenty of the Warden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Warden by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Twenty. Farewell. On the morning after Mister Harding's return home, he received a note from the Bishop, full of affection, condolence, and praise. "Pray come to me at once," wrote the Bishop, "that we may see what had better be done as to the hospital." I will not say a word to dissuade you, but I don't like your going to Crabtree. At any rate, come to me at once. Mr. Harding did go to him at once, and long and confidential was the consultation between the two old friends. There they sat together the whole long day, plotting to get the better of the archdeacon and to carry out little schemes of their own, which they knew would be opposed by the whole weight of his authority." The bishop's first idea was that Mr. Harding, if left to himself, would certainly starve. Not in the figurative sense in which so many of our ladies and gentlemen do starve on incomes from one to five hundred a year. Not that he would be starved as regarded dress coats, port wine, and pocket money, but that he would positively perish of inanation for want of bread. How is a man to live when he gives up all his income? said the bishop to himself, and then the good-natured little man began to consider how his friend might be rescued from a death so horrid and painful. His first proposition to Mr. Harding was that they should live together at the palace. He, the bishop, positively assured Mr. Harding that he wanted another resident chaplain." Not a young working chaplain, but a steady, middle-aged chaplain, one who would dine and drink a glass of wine with him, talk about the archdeacon, and poke the fire. The bishop did not positively name all these duties, but he gave Mr. Harding to understand that such would be the nature of the service required. It was not without much difficulty that Mr. Harding made his friend see that this would not suit him that he could not throw up the bishop's preferment and then come and hang on at the bishop's table that he could not allow people to say of him that it was an easy matter to abandon his own income as he was able to sponge on that of another person he succeeded however in explaining that the plan would not do and then the bishop brought forward another which he had in his sleeve he the bishop had in his own will left certain moneys to mr harding's two daughters imagining that Mr. Harding would himself want no such assistance during his own lifetime. This legacy amounted to three thousand pounds each, duty-free, and he now pressed it as a gift on his friend. The girls, you know, said he, will have it just the same when you're gone, and they won't want it sooner, and as for the interest during my lifetime, it isn't worth talking about. I have more than enough. With much difficulty and heartfelt sorrow, Mr. Harding refused also this offer. No, his wish was to support himself, however poorly, not to be supported on the charity of any one. It was hard to make the bishop understand this. It was hard to make him comprehend that the only real favor he could confer was the continuation of his independent friendship. But at last even this was done. "At any rate," thought the bishop, "he will come and dine with me from time to time, and if he be absolutely starving I shall see it." Touching the precentorship, the bishop was clearly of opinion that it could be held without the other situation, an opinion from which no one differed, and it was therefore soon settled among all the parties concerned that mr Harding should still be the precentor of the cathedral. On the day following Mr. Harding's return, the Archdeacon reached Plumstead full of Mr. Cummins's scheme regarding Puddingdale and Mr. Quiverful. On the very next morning he drove over to Puddingdale and obtained the full consent of the wretched clerical Priam, who was endeavoring to feed his poor Hecuba and a dozen of Hectors on the small proceeds of his ecclesiastical kingdom. Mr. Quiverful had no doubts as to the legal rights of the warden his conscience would be quite clear as to accepting the income and as to the jupiter he begged to assure the archdeacon that he was quite indifferent to any emanations from the profane portion of the periodical press having so far succeeded he next sounded the bishop but here he was astonished by most unexpected resistance the bishop did not think it would do not do why not and seeing that his father was not shaken, he repeated the question in a severer form: "Why not do, my lord? His lordship looked very unhappy and shuffled about in his chair, but still didn't give way. He thought Puddingdale wouldn't do for Mr. Harding; it was too far from Barchester. Oh, of course, I'll have a curate. The bishop also thought that Mr. Quiverful wouldn't do for the hospital. Such an exchange wouldn't look well at such a time, and when pressed harder, he declared he didn't think Mr. Harding would accept of Puddingdale under any circumstances. "'How is he to live?' demanded the archdeacon. The bishop, with tears in his eyes, declared that he had not the slightest conception how life was to be sustained within him at all. The archdeacon then left his father and went down to the hospital but Mr. Harding wouldn't listen at all to the Puddingdale scheme. To his eyes it had no attraction. It savored of simony, and was likely to bring down upon him harder and more deserved strictures than any he had yet received. He positively declined to become vicar of Puddingdale under any circumstances. The archdeacon waxed wroth, talked big, and looked bigger. He said something about dependence and beggary, spoke of the duty every man was under to earn his bread, made passing allusions to the follies of youth and waywardness of age as though Mr. Harding were afflicted by both, and ended by declaring that he had done. He felt that he had left no stone unturned to arrange matters on the best and easiest footing, that he had in fact so arranged them, that he had so managed, that there was no further need of any anxiety in the matter and how had he been paid? His advice had been systematically rejected. He had been not only slighted, but distrusted and avoided. He and his measures had been utterly thrown over, as had been Sir Abraham, who, he had reason to know, was much pained at what had occurred. He now found it was useless to interfere any further, and he should retire. If any further assistance were required from him, he would probably be called on, and should be again happy to come forward. And so he left the hospital, and has not since entered it from that day to this. And here we must take leave of Archdeacon Grantly. We fear that he is represented in these pages as being worse than he is, but we've had to do with his foibles, and not with his virtues. We have seen only the weak side of the man, and have lacked the opportunity of bringing him forward on his strong ground. That he is a man somewhat too fond of his own way, and not sufficiently scrupulous in his manner of achieving it, his best friends cannot deny. That he is bigoted in favor, not so much of his doctrines as of his cloth, is also true. And it is true that the possession of a large income is a desire that sits near his heart. Nevertheless, the archdeacon is a gentleman, and a man of conscience. He spends his money liberally, and does the work he has to do with the best of his ability. He improves the tone of society of those among whom he lives. His aspirations are of a healthy, if not the highest, kind. Though never an austere man, he upholds propriety of conduct both by example and precept. He is generous to the poor, and hospitable to the rich. In matters of religion, he is sincere, and yet no Pharisee. He is an earnest, and yet no fanatic. On the whole, the Archdeacon of Barchester is a man doing more good than harm, a man to be furthered and supported, though perhaps also to be controlled. And it is a matter of regret to us that the course of our narrative has required that we should see more of his weakness than his strength." Mr. Harding allowed himself no rest till everything was prepared for his departure from the hospital. It may be as well to mention that he was not driven to the stern necessity of selling all his furniture. He had been quite in earnest in his intention to do so, but it was soon made known to him that the claims of Messrs. Cox and Cummins made no such step obligatory. The archdeacon had thought it wise to make use of the threat of the lawyer's bill to frighten his father in law into compliance; but he had no intention to saddle mr Harding with costs, which had been incurred by no means exclusively for his benefit. The amount of the bill was added to the diocesan account, and was in fact paid out of the bishop's pocket, without any consciousness on the part of his lordship. A great part of his furniture he did resolve to sell, having no other means to dispose of it and the ponies and carriage were transferred by private contract to the use of an old maiden lady in the city. For his present use Mr. Harding took a lodging in Barchester, and thither were conveyed such articles as he wanted for daily use. His music, books, and instruments, his own armchair, and Eleanor's pet sofa, her teapoy and his cellaret, and also the slender but still sufficient contents of his wine cellar mrs grantly had much wished that her sister would reside at plumstead till her father's house at crabtree should be ready for her but eleanor herself strongly resisted this proposal it was in vain urged upon her that a lady in lodgings cost more than a gentleman and that under her father's present circumstances such an expense should be avoided Eleanor had not pressed her father to give up the hospital, in order that she might live at Plumstead Rectory, and he alone in his Barchester lodgings. Nor did Eleanor think that she would be treating a certain gentleman very fairly, if she betook herself to the house which he would be the least desirous of entering of any in the county. So she got a little bedroom for herself behind the sitting-room, and just over the little back parlour of the chemist, with whom they were to lodge there was somewhat of a savour of senna softened by peppermint about the place, but on the whole the lodgings were clean and comfortable. The day had been fixed for the migration of the ex-warden, and all Barchester were in a state of excitement on the subject. Opinion was much divided as to the propriety of Mr. Harding's conduct. The mercantile part of the community, the mayor and corporation and council, also most of the ladies, were loud in his praise, Nothing could be more noble, nothing more generous, nothing more upright. But the gentry were of a different way of thinking, especially the lawyers and the clergymen. They said such conduct was very weak and undignified, that Mr. Harding evinced a lamentable want of esprit de corps as well as courage, and that such an abdication must do much harm, and could do but little good. On the evening before he left, he summoned all the beadsmen into his parlour to wish them good-bye. With Bunce he had been in frequent communication since his return from London, and had been at much pains to explain to the old man the cause of his resignation, without in any way prejudicing the position of his successor. The others, also, he had seen more or less frequently, and had heard from most of them separately some expression of regret at his departure but he had postponed his farewell till the last evening. He now bade the maid put wine and glasses on the table, and had the chairs arranged around the room, and sent bunts to each of the men to request that they would come and say farewell to their late warden. Soon the noise of aged scuffling feet was heard upon the gravel and in the little hall, and the eleven men who were enabled to leave their rooms were assembled. "'Come in, my friends, come in,' said the warden he was still warden then come in and sit down and he took the hand of abel handy who was the nearest to him and led the limping grumbler to a chair the others followed slowly and bashfully the infirm the lame and the blind poor wretches who had been so happy had they but known it now their aged faces were covered with shame and every kind word from their master was a coal of fire burning on their heads. When first the news had reached them that Mr. Harding was going to leave the hospital, it had been received with a kind of triumph. His departure was, as it were, a prelude to success. He had admitted his want of right to the money about which they were disputing, and as it did not belong to him, of course it did to them. The one hundred a year to each of them was actually becoming a reality, and Abel Handy was a hero, and Bunce a faint-hearted sycophant, worthy neither of honor nor friendship. But other tidings soon made their way into the old men's rooms. It was first notified to them that the income abandoned by Mr. Harding would not come to them, and these accounts were confirmed by Attorney Finney. They were then informed that Mr. Harding's place would at once be filled by another, that the new warden could not be a kinder man they all knew, that he would be a less friendly one, most suspected, and then came the bitter information that, from the moment of Mr. Harding's departure, the tuppence a day his own peculiar gift must of necessity be withdrawn." AND THIS WAS TO BE THE END OF ALL THEIR MIGHTY STRUGGLE, OF THEIR FIGHT FOR THEIR RIGHTS, OF THEIR PETITION, AND THEIR DEBATES, AND THEIR HOPES. THEY WERE TO CHANGE THE BEST OF MASTERS FOR A POSSIBLE BAD ONE, AND TO LOSE twopence A DAY EACH MAN. NO, UNFORTUNATE AS THIS WAS, IT WAS NOT THE WORST, OR NEARLY THE WORST, AS WILL JUST NOW BE SEEN. SIT DOWN, SIT DOWN, MY FRIENDS, SAID THE WARDEN. I want to say a word to you and to drink your healths before I leave you. Come up here, Moody, here's a chair for you. Come, Jonathan Crumple. And by degrees he got the men to be seated. It was not surprising that they should hang back with faint hearts, having returned so much kindness with such deep ingratitude. Last of all of them came Bunce, and with sorrowful mien and slow step, got into his accustomed seat near the fireplace. When they were all in their places, Mr. Harding rose to address them, and then finding himself not quite at home on his legs, he sat down again. "'My dear old friends,' said he, "'you all know that I'm going to leave you.'" There was a sort of murmur ran around the room, intended perhaps to express regret at his departure, but it was but a murmur, and might have meant that or anything else. "'There has lately been some misunderstanding between us. "'You have thought, I believe, that you did not get all that you were entitled to, "'and that the funds of the hospital have not been properly disposed of. "'As for me, I cannot say what should be the disposition of these moneys "'or how they should be managed, and I have therefore thought it best to go.' "'We never wanted to drive your reverence out of it,' said Handy." no indeed your reverence said sculpit we never thought it would come to this when i signed the petition that is i i didn't sign it because let his reverence speak can't you said moody no continued mr harding i am sure you did not wish to turn me out but i thought it best to leave you i am not a very good hand at a lawsuit as you may all guess and when it seemed necessary that our ordinary quiet mode of living should be disturbed, I thought it better to go. I am neither angry nor offended with any man in the hospital. Here Bunce uttered a kind of groan, very clearly expressive of disagreement. "'I am neither angry nor displeased with any man in the hospital,' repeated Mr. Harding emphatically. "'If any man has been wrong—' and I don't say any man has. He has erred through wrong advice. In this country all are entitled to look for their own rights, and you have done no more. As long as your interests and my interests were at variance, I could give you no counsel on this subject, but the connection between us has ceased. My income can no longer depend on your doings, and therefore as I leave you, I venture to offer you my advice. The men all declared that they would, from henceforth, be entirely guided by Mr. Harding's opinion in their affairs. Some gentlemen will probably take my place here very soon, and I strongly advise you to be prepared to receive him in a kindly spirit, and to raise no further question among yourselves as to the amount of his income. Were you to succeed in lessening what he has to receive, you would not increase your own allowance. The surplus would not go to you. Your wants are adequately provided for, and your position could hardly be improved. "'God bless your reverence, we knows it,' said Spriggs. "'It's all true, your reverence,' said Sculpit. "'We sees it all now.' Yes, Mr. Harding, said Bunce, opening his mouth for the first time. I believe they do understand it now, now that they're driven from under the same roof with them, such a master as not one of them will ever know again, now that they're like to be in sore want of a friend. Come, come, Bunce, said Mr. Harding, blowing his nose and maneuvering to wipe his eyes at the same time. "'Oh, as to that,' said Handy, "'we none of us never wanted to do Mr. Harding no harm. "'If he's going now, it's not along of us, "'and I don't see for what Mr. Bunce speaks up again us that way.' "'You've ruined yourselves, and you've ruined me too, and that's why,' said Bunce. "'Nonsense, Bunce,' said Mr. Harding. "'There's nobody ruined at all. "'I hope you'll let me leave you all friends.' i hope you'll all drink a glass of wine in friendly feeling with me and with one another you'll have a good friend i don't doubt in your new warden and if ever you want any other why after all i'm not going so far off but that i shall sometimes see you and then having finished his speech mr harding filled all the glasses and himself handed each a glass to the men round him and raising his own said god bless you all You have my heartfelt wishes for your welfare. I hope you live contented, and die trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thankful to Almighty God for the good things he has given you. God bless you, my friends. And Mr. Harding drank his wine. Another murmur, somewhat more articulate than the first, passed round the circle, and this time it was intended to imply a blessing on Mr. Harding. It had, however, but little cordiality in it. Poor old men. How could they be cordial with their sore consciences and shamed faces? How could they bid God bless him with hearty voices and a true benison, knowing as they did that their vile cabal had driven him from his happy home and sent him in his old age to seek shelter under a strange roof-tree? They did their best, however. They drank their wine and withdrew. As they left the hall door, Mr. Harding shook hands with each of the men, and spoke a kind word to them about their individual cases and ailments, and so they departed, answering his questions in the fewest words, and retreated to their dens, a sorrowful, repentant crew. All but Bunce, who still remained to make his own farewell. "'There's poor old Bell," said Mr. Harding. I mustn't go without saying a word to him. Come through with me, Bunce, and bring the wine with you.' And so they went through to the men's cottages, and found the old man propped up as usual in his bed. "'I've come to say good-bye to you, Bell," said Mr. Harding, speaking loud, for the old man was deaf. "'And are you going away then, really?' asked Bell. INDEED I AM, AND I have BROUGHT YOU A GLASS OF WINE, SO THAT WE MAY PART FRIENDS, AS WE LIVED, YOU KNOW. THE OLD MAN TOOK THE PROFFERED GLASS IN HIS SHAKING HANDS, AND DRANK IT EAGERLY. GOD BLESS YOU, BELL, SAID MR. HARDING. GOOD-BYE, MY OLD FRIEND. AND SO YOU'RE REALLY GOING? THE OLD MAN AGAIN ASKED. INDEED I AM, BELL. The poor old bedridden creature still kept mr Harding's hand in his own, and the warden thought that he had met with something like warmth of feeling in the one of all his subjects from whom it was the least likely to be expected, for poor old Bell had nearly outlived all human feelings. "And your reverence," said he, And then he paused, while his old palsied head shook horribly, and his shriveled cheek sank lower within his jaws, and his glazy eye gleamed with a momentary light. "'And, your reverence, shall we get the hundred a year, then?' How gently did Mr. Harding try to extinguish the false hope of money which had been so wretchedly raised to disturb the quiet of the dying man." One other week and his mortal coil would be shuffled off; in one short week would God resume his soul, and set it apart for its irrevocable doom. Seven more tedious days and nights of senseless inactivity, and all would be over for poor Bell in this world. And yet, with his last audible words, he was demanding his moneyed rights, and asserting himself to be the proper heir of john Hiram's bounty. Not on him, poor sinner as he was, be the load of such sin. Mr. Harding returned to his parlour, meditating with a sick heart on what he had seen, and Bunce with him. We will not describe the parting of these two good men, for good men they were. It was in vain that the late warden endeavoured to comfort the heart of the old beadsman. Poor old Bunce felt that his days of comfort were gone. THE HOSPITAL HAD TO HIM BEEN A HAPPY HOME, BUT IT COULD BE SO NO LONGER. HE HAD HAD HONOR THERE AND FRIENDSHIP. HE HAD RECOGNIZED HIS MASTER AND HAD BEEN RECOGNIZED. ALL HIS WANTS, BOTH OF SOUL AND BODY, HAD BEEN SUPPLIED, AND HE HAD BEEN A HAPPY MAN. HE WEPT grievously AS HE PARTED FROM HIS FRIEND, AND THE TEARS OF AN OLD MAN ARE BITTER. IT IS ALL OVER FOR ME IN THIS WORLD, SAID HE as he gave the last squeeze to Mr. Harding's hand, I have now to forgive those who have injured me, and to die. And so the old man went out, and then Mr. Harding gave way to his grief, and he too wept aloud. End of chapter 20 Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota